Hi, this is Dr. Alice Kirby. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Beyond the Pink Cloud. Um, I'm really excited. This evening, I have with me Kirsten Johnson, who is a transformational life coach, a TEDx speaker, and a published author with her book, I think that has been recently released, The Heartgasm Revolution. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It is wonderful to be here. Awesome. So I'd love to um, just have you tell us a little bit about your story and, you know, you don't have to go into a ton of detail because I know you have a lot about yourself in other online places. Um, and with your TEDx talk, you give some of your history, but if you'd like to just give a brief summary of how you became the woman that you are and, and doing the work that you do, I think my listeners would love to hear it. Wow. Yeah, cool. Um, there's, there's like a five hour answer to that. <laughs> Maybe like a five second. <laughs> I, I think the best way to condense it all is I'm, uh, I grew up rejecting myself. Uh, there was a lot of trauma in my in my childhood, and so I I learned to to ignore the way I felt inside, and to believe the people around me. And alcohol was great; it really helped with that because I could uh, not have to feel what I felt inside, um, didn't have to feel the anxiety, and it just all got worse and worse and worse. And so it blew up and looked like a bunch of different anxiety disorders and an alcohol addiction, which um, led me to rehab. And so I was like, really saying it really quick. Yeah. And sure. I, I got sober September 29th, 2009. Um, so 10 years ago, this time was uh, the worst time of my life right now because we're really close to um, when I'll turn 10. Um, and so I got sober and getting sober for me was um, welcome to your feelings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Almost one at a time. It was the first two, two and a half years was like an anxiety attack. And then, and I, so I really, that was unprocessed trauma. So I had the traumatic stress was up there. I had um, learning how to live without the benzos and without alcohol. Um, so that was just um, a really a, a time where my nervous system was really frazzled and I was really interested in learning how to feel comfortable in my skin. But after the, I, I transformed the anxiety, it became more feelings would emerge. And so my journey, my past decade of my life has really been about learning how to feel, you know, whether it was rage, grief, guilt, shame, uh, and love, and uh, getting down to the truth of who I am. So my story really is like one of a, a girl who learned to reject herself and then hit a bottom with alcohol and then slowly learned to embrace who I am. Uh, and I'm still on that journey, but uh, I'd say today I'm a woman who loves herself for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. It seems like a lot of your work is based around that, like self-love and teaching others self-love um, through feeling, I guess. I mean, that sounds like that's a big part of your story is just getting past that, the layers of anxiety and alcoholism and you know PTSD and all those things that really keep us locked in yeah. And like re reactive states, I think either like fight, flight, freeze, where we're just not really allowing ourselves to feel because we're constantly sort of trying to mitigate what we perceive as trauma. Yeah. My, uh, there's been a lot of, I've had a lot of PTSD <laughs> and alcohol was wonderful to, uh, to treat that in a way or to not feel all of it in a way. And I actually don't think, I think I was misdiagnosed with all my anxiety disorders. Like now that I look back and with wiser eyes, and this is kind of what I touch on in, in my TED talk, but it, I actually don't look at, look at it as anxiety disorders anymore because I never talked about my trauma. So really to me, it was just, I had traumatic stress that had never been addressed mm -hmm. and it was called generalized anxiety. It was called these phobias and stuff. And I really did have phobias like public speaking, driving, whatever. But I think it was just because I never went under the hood and, and, and resolved anything, it was always bubbling under there, kind of like a volcano. You know, I'm on Bali right now, so kind of like this volcano <laughs> that was just building up, and then it just would blow up every once in a while on a panic attack or whatever, and eventually I couldn't get enough alcohol in my system or benzos to, to shut it all up, and it just completely backfired. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> I think a lot of us use alcohol to treat anxiety, and it just doesn't work after a while. It's like kind of great for a little while. And then after that, um, it's really not the worst. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of things did you do like early on when you, I know you said like the first two years of your sobriety, you were really just waking up to feelings. Did you have any, um, like particular things that you did or practices that you tapped into or like therapy or any other sort of techniques that you use to help you like during that time when it was still pretty new for you to, to actually feel? Sure. Yeah. And I want to touch on what you just said before that too, about self-love. I didn't know that I didn't have self-love the first several years of my recovery. I didn't, I didn't recognize that. So I do talk about self-love now and that's what my book, The Harkasm Revolution is about. It's a practical guide to self-love. 
I didn't know that was a problem because almost in a um, vanity, I had vanity. I liked the image I had presented. I wasn't actually being loving with myself. So if any of your listeners aren't relating to lacking self-love, I didn't, I didn't even see that as a potential solution to PTSD, anxiety, alcoholism, all of that as a way, as a way out, as a way, um, as a path. So I didn't, I didn't see it that I needed self-love, um, but that's what I found on my journey. So mm-hmm. if any of y'all out there are feeling like I'm good, it's like maybe, probably. And then there's, I think there's always room for all of us to grow more in all areas, you know, so just keeping an open mind is what I've learned is helpful. As far as in my, the early, my early recovery, you know, I just wanted to feel comfortable in my skin. And like, I was, uh, yeah, it was really bad. It was really bad in the beginning. And I was really anxious. I was anxious all the time. I was going to recovery meetings. Those made me really anxious. And um, I, I, I was like smoking a lot of cigarettes. <laughs> I was drinking a lot of coffee and that made me anxious. <laughs> I, didn't wanna, I would like literally drink as much coffee as I could to not have an anxiety attack. And once the anxiety got bad, I would stop drinking coffee until the anxiety went down and then I'd start drinking coffee again. It was, <laughs> it was sick. It was like, I want to be buzzed, but in a good way, I don't know. Yeah. It was like, it was wild, you know? And, um, but I, I was unemployable in the beginning. I wasn't able to think my brain was super jambled and I was super, I couldn't focus at all. And so what I did was I was 90 days sober. I did a yoga teacher training. I was like, well, I can't use my mind. So why don't I use my body right now? Instead of just sit here, like freaked out, why don't I do something calming for my body? And so I did a, um, I just literally Googled like yoga training close to me starting soon, something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was an Ashtanga yoga teacher training that I went, I didn't even know what Ashtanga was. Apparently it's like kind of fierce yoga. (laughs) Kind of intense. (laughs) I don't know what it is. It's it's not the easy one. I had no idea. I just said like, what's the next one near me? And that was it. So I, I, I spent a month living up in like wine country of all places um, in, in bed and breakfast with a bunch of other yogis. And we just did this month long immersive uh, yoga teacher training program. And, you know, I had such shame at the time because I'd like sneak out at night and go to recovery meetings and I wouldn't tell them where I was going because I had a lot of shame around it. So I'm like, and I'd, I'd like leave class. Like we do like an hour long practice halfway through 45 minutes. I'm outside the building smoking cigarettes, coming back into <laughs> yoga. And it just, that was the best that I could do. You know, it was. And so I had, I had so much shame around that. And finally I just, I told them that I was sober, that I, I turned four months sober when I was with them. And I was like, I'm four months sober today. And I cried and it was like the first time telling non-sober people I was sober. And that was really healing. Um, of course they were accepting. I mean, these are yogis in the woods. Like, <laughs> sure, yeah, I know they probably really took you in and embraced you and loved you yeah. up. They're like, we figured it. You're chain smoking behind the building. What other <laughs> person is like putting out cigarettes on their yoga mat? You know, <laughs> someone newly sober. That's who. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get through a yoga class, you know. And then, uh, and then at six months sober, they all applied to this. Um, they were all applying. To, they were like super into Ashtanga, and I didn't even really know what it was. I was like accidentally there. They were all applying to this um, yoga place in India where it came from. There was like this guru who he, he was from India and it's, uh, his name is Pajabi Joyce. And they told me his name yeah. is Pajabi Joyce. He started Ashtanga. We're going to all go to his place. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And so I applied, like we all applied. It was more like whatever. I just filled out the form and emailed it in. Um, didn't think about it again. And a month later, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just had this temporary one month job in New York and I was flying home. I'm like, well, what am I going to do now? I still can't really work. I wasn't able to work in New York. My brain's not back. I don't know what to do with my, I don't know what to do with my time. Um, And I'm super anxious. And I got this email from India saying, congratulations, you've been accepted. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I forgot I applied. Yeah. I just like, what? And there's this one other guy from my, my yoga training was going only one other guy. And he's like, I'll get you a place. We're living next door to the Shala. And I was like, what? India? It's crazy. So, um, but I was still really unemployable and I was like, okay, well, that'll be really good because I'm freaked out and maybe, you know, I can learn there how to be comfortable with my skin. So I went to India and that was wild because, um, you know, it was like a 27 hour flight and I didn't know how to go that long without smoking. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Catch up. And so I, and, and I ended up, the, my last cigarette that I've ever smoked was in April, 2010 at San Francisco airport when I flew to India that day. Um, after the 27 hours, I'm like, well, maybe I'll like stick with not smoking anymore. I had so much shame around smoking behind the yoga studio that I was like, I don't want to be the one in India who's leaving, leaving the guru's ashram to like smoke outside. Like that's so humiliating. So the shame really helped me like quit smoking, (laughs) but these people were amazing. They were like floating on their hands. I still didn't. And it's, they don't, there's no teacher like with Ashtanga. They like, it's, there's a series of poses. And so, um, 
So yeah, and I didn't have a memory. So I'd be like studying at night how to do the poses that I'd go. So it was kind of like an accident really that I was there really. I mean, they were like the best in the world. So I was doing this Tabi Joyous yoga thing with no clue. Like I was like in kindergarten and, grad, and they were all in grad school. But they, you know what was really cool about that place is th- their way of thinking was very different than my own. They were into this meditation stuff. They were into this mindfulness. They were into all these practices I'd never heard of. And they, set, they, recommend, they sent me to this like guru across town. And so I go in this little rickshaw and I walk in not knowing really what to do. And I just basically, I'm like, everything scares me. <laughs> He's like, tell me about anxiety, panic. I'm panicking right now. Like I can't breathe. I'm freaked out. I'm sober. I can't work. And he was, and he taught me transcendental meditation. Gotcha. Yeah. And so basically for the, the listeners, like you definitely don't have to go to India again. It was just kind of what was in front of me. Right. Mm-hmm. But like, it was a mantra. I used a mantra and my mind was racing so fast. I really needed that mantra to like, to latch onto so that I can actually have something to bring my thoughts to. So instead of all my crazy thoughts, it was like I had a, a, a mantra to repeat in my head and they give you like a specialized mantra. And I've still never told anybody. He's like, don't ever tell anybody. I was like, okay, guru. Yeah. I mean, he changed my life. So I, I honored his, you know, sure, request. Yeah. do you use the same mantra now today? Um, if I'm going to do transcendental med- meditation, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I normally just focus on my breath when I meditate and just transcend my thoughts on my own. It, it taught me how to transcend my thoughts. Mm-hmm. But that you can learn that from focusing on your breath. Another mantra that like I invite my clients because I, you know, I, I teach meditation to some of my clients sometimes and in online programs I run, but is may I be at peace mm-hmm. or the serenity prayer or, or, or even like, you know, uh, one of my prayers I use all the time, which in a way is a mantra is God show me or make it obvious your, your will for me, God. So anything that we repeat in our head, if we're repeating something like may I be at peace, which is from Buddha then we don't have an, it's harder for our thoughts to, to jump in. If we're giving our mind thoughts, we're feeding our mind thoughts. It's harder for the thought, thoughts just to flow through. So for people who have really busy minds, especially in early sobriety, having a mantra really was a game changer for me. And then I, um, while I was in Mysore, India with all these like, you know, enlightened yogis, <laughs> I'm like, two days off cigarettes. Like, you know, I'm like freaking out. <laughs> and it was just, it was so wild that I was there. I'm like, you guys, I'm just trying to like do one day at a time, one breath at a time. <laughs> they were so advanced. And so I ended up going to this other guru because I was like obsessively like doing gurus the way I drank, you know? And so I found this other guru and he, and he taught me about focusing on my breath, focusing on a candle. He studied the yoga sutras and, um, he, and I, I just one-on-one, I was with him in this little um, in his little place, there'd be like this lightning rainstorm outside and we're inside in this dark little, um, shack of a room really with like a rusty school desk. And he, there's a candle and he doesn't know a lot of English and he's just teaching me how to breathe. And I was like, wow, I feel good. Hmm. I feel good. So I found a lot of peace on that trip. You know, I, I, I left not knowing how I was going to be on the flight without a cigarette or without having a panic attack. And I, what I gained was a lot of tools and peace. And, um, and so it was things like focusing on my breath or, accounting to three and knowing that that was going to activate my, um, the front part of my brain and get me out of the fear part of my brain and just really, really simple tips to start to teach me to calm down. And so that's really what helped me so much in the beginning. That's lovely. And I think that's really useful for people too. Um, just the, the whole idea of using a mantra because that's not anything that's really complex or that you, you know, need to like go to India for. It's just a simple thing that you, um, you can start doing today. I love tools like that or just any kind of techniques like that that people can just grab a hold of and start using. And of course, you can refine it and study with more people and in, in deepen a practice. But I think, yeah. you know, just hearing like this one thing like helped me and obviously you did more than one thing, but I like giving people a little like nugget, you know, like take this and start today and see what happens for you and grow from there. There was, um, then when I was eight months sober, I went to Australia for five weeks. I, you know, it's funny in rehab, I, you guys, I mean, I rocked up to rehab with a black eye. It was a hot freaking mess. And in rehab, they're like, right, your dream year, first year of your recovery. I'm like, well, first of all, I'm definitely doing drugs again. You know, like, <laughs> I have a vision of when I'm 80 years old, being on the beach with my husband, taking ecstasy or you know, whatever. Right. You know, I was just like, what? I can't, I, I don't even do them. I, I, drugs are out, alcohol's out. Um, I didn't even think I can go a year sober, but they had us write down this like goals for a year. And I was like, I want to, I want to be an international consultant. I want to fly around the world and be a consultant. And that's, you know, what's crazy about like when we set down our goals and mm-hmm. we get around something, it's happened. It's not what I was before, but it happened. I, it was beyond my wildest dreams. And next thing I know, I'm working in New York for a month and then I'm in India. And then I go, then I go to Australia 
when I was in Australia, I met this old man at a recovery meeting and I told him like, look, I'm really anxious. Like, I don't know what to do or whatever I was saying. And he taught me a really cool um, trick too that really helped my early recovery. He's like, rub your belly. When you're anxious, rub your belly and bring your attention into, I'm doing that right now, and bring your attention (laughs) into the area where your hand and your belly meet. Notice it's warm. Like notice what you feel between your hand and your belly. And so, and I was like, so simple. And the best things I learned with anxiety, the best things in early recovery, the best things were super simple. Super simple. I agree. I'd rub my belly and it would bring me into the moment away from my thoughts. It would bring me into my body away from my thoughts. And I realized that the more I can get breaks from my thoughts, the more freedom I have. Yes. And that that the breath, what I learned about the breath too, and I learned this with one of the gurus that I was studying with in India is when I'm doing the deep breaths, the stress or the anxiety or traumatic stress or the, the panic is all my activated sympathetic nervous system. And the way to turn that off is to turn on my parasympathetic nervous system. And the way to do that is to bring my full attention to slow, mindful breaths. So for someone like me who was a statistician before I got sober, understanding like the science of how, like the, the truth about how the body works, yes. that actually helped. It, it was a placebo effect, but not really because it was truth, you know, mm-hmm. because I knew that the deep breaths calmed down my stress. They calmed it down even more and I reached for it even more. And same thing, because I knew there was science behind the counting and the breathing, I was like, oh, that works. And plus the belly rub work. And I was like, oh, these things actually work. And so I just kept reaching because I was so desperate. I just kept trying the things and slowly it started like completely transforming my life. Yeah, that's amazing. And I um, I love, I'm the same way because I come from an evidence-based profession. So I really like for things that I do to have backing and to understand them like for my me, for myself and for the people that I work with. And sometimes I think people don't really care or maybe I pile it on too thick with like, no, here's like the evidence. Here's why this works. And I, cause it's interesting to me. I like to understand it. And I think sometimes people just want to feel better. So they don't maybe care as much as I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I like knowing, and I think it's, I think adding that level of education to people who do have that kind of mindset or want to know more, it does give it more credence and more like, okay, like I know, this works. It's not some woo woo like thing, you know, that hippies do in the woods. Um, it <laughs> might be that too. <laughs> I mean, I think there's really room for both, but yeah. Yeah. But I like having the science back in. I love like physiology and, and understanding some neuroscience. It's, I love yeah. it. The oh. other thing that I really, um, the other thing that I really found too, was I let all that go. I let my need for, um, proof out external proof go at some point in my recovery. And that was so freedom. In the beginning, it was really important. And I know when I teach people who are new that it's really important, but I am like zero Fs. I don't know if I can swear. So zero Fs around, uh, <laughs> around whether or not that somebody paid research, maybe sponsored by some company who yeah. has some agenda, <laughs> has researched something to prove something or not. What I found was if I take three slow breaths, I actually feel more peace. And that it became, and this, that's the same way I developed faith. When I, what, whether there is or isn't a God is irrelevant to the fact that when I believe in faith, my life is better. Mm-hmm. Therefore, whether or not there is a God is totally out of the question. When I believe, when I, when I live in faith, my day is better. That's all the proof I need. And so I got really into, and I, I have a master's in statistics. I spent my entire life before I got sober, like analyzing massive data. I was super like, I need the data, the proof, but I became more interested in recovery about well, what is my own experience showing me? What is the data of my own experience? And let me just go by my own experience. When I breathe, when I rub my belly, I feel better. There's my data, you know, like there's yeah. my data. So I'm, I'm going to do more of what works and less of what doesn't. And so, um, and that got me into prayer because I started praying, even though I didn't believe in any sort of higher power at all, but I started praying and I noticed that when I prayed, it really, it really affected my anxiety. And that when I learned to live in faith, there wasn't really room for fear. Meaning, and I don't mean that as like a catchy little, like I I say that and I, and I don't want people to hear, oh, that's like a little Instagram tweetable or something. right? Right. But really when I was scared, I would pray to be guided please make the choice obvious. Please make my fear go away. And when I'm literally saying to myself, please make the fear go away, whether I'm saying it to God, to Jesus, to the Easter bunny, to like Mm -hmm. an energy of the universe or just myself, my inner child, any, it doesn't matter who I think I'm saying it to. When I say, please remove my fear, I'm being intentional. My thoughts carry energy and it's shifting the way I feel inside. Yeah. And so there isn't room for me to be super afraid in my thinking if I'm using, just like the mantra, if I'm using my thinking to ask for peace, there isn't as much room for the fear to come through. Yeah, it kind of drives it out. Um, 
And I like, I like that too, the evidence just being based on what works. And I think that's what a lot of people are looking for too. Like I was saying earlier, they just want to feel better, you know, and like what works to make me feel better. This works to make me feel better. Have you, somebody last night actually in a um, kind of a women's fellowship dinner I was at mentioned like four brothers from, in it's like a Balinesian thing where when you talk about like spirit guides or energy around you, there's like some belief in Bali where there's four brothers around you. And then you sort of say your prayers or say, you know, what you're hoping for, or what you need, like to these four brothers, this is all I know about it. So I may be butchering whatever it actually is. Um, but then they can kind of like absorb that energy and I don't know, help you like obtain what you're looking for or guide you in your prayers. Have you heard of that at all? No, I'll ask about it because, like, I obviously have a lot of Balinese friends. I talk to every Balinese person I see throughout the day, the little Indonesian I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I haven't heard, I've heard of a lot of different traditions and a lot of their different beliefs. I haven't heard about that. Like, there's something that, like, in the 12 step community is called character defects, mm-hmm. or maybe in um, less evolved communities, it's called being an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but what they call it here (laughs) um they like especially like if a boule or like which is westerner right if a westerner is acting out um particularly around new moon and full moon there's connection between um the behavior negative behaviors or character defects or assholeism coming out around full moons and new moons which at first i thought was a woo-woo but then i attract my own behavior and i Mm -hmm. and i started to see that that was true for me and so I practice restraint and pen and tongue more around full moon and new moon. I know, I know that I'm a little more swayed, but the way that they look at it, they have this whole spiritual like beliefs here. I mean, there, it's a Hindu island, island of the gods, it's a Hindu island, but they have this whole belief in um, uh, afterlife, ghosts, uh, ghosts uh, dark spirits, light spirits, all these different you know, en- energies. And so um, they think when someone's being a jerk that they're actually temporarily being possessed by a lower spirit. Hmm. And so they put extra, they put extra, as far as I understand, this is my understanding. Uh, and maybe some of it doesn't totally translate, but they put down extra offerings on the ground. Like they might put down like one basket or like one little square on, on regular days in the morning, but they'll put down like three or five or like a huge one on full moon and new moon. And the idea is there's going to be more lower spirits in the, or more darker, lower spirits in the, in the, um, in the field in the, in, on the earth, um, at that time on the island so that they know that like, okay, let's put extra offerings to appease them. So that if, if a Westerner or Boule is like acting out, they kind of think it, they're temporarily possessed by this the spirit. Hmm. I think like in America, we might just call it being a jerk, right? Yeah. But like, but they, <laughs> there are all sorts of beliefs about spirits and the influence of the spirits on us. And um, it, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it is. And I have a good friend who has actually gone to Bali a few times to study Shiva Murti, but he talks a lot with like his spirit guides and he's very into this and he's been sober like 12 years. Um, But that's his whole thing. And he's this great spiritual guy that I've known a long time. Um, But he'll, I remember when I before, right before I got sober, I was in Hawaii. I was over there and like, just, it was, you know, right before I got sober. So everything was kind of a mess for me. And I was sitting by the Hanalei River and just crying and sobbing and felt like my life was destroyed. And I remember texting him and I was like, I feel like I'm going to die. Like I'm not suicidal, but I don't know how to keep on living. And hmm. he like, I feel like he just saved me at that moment. Cause he was like, just pray, pray to your spirit guides. Like just pray for the, you know, for guidance. You don't have to believe in anything you're praying in. And it was such this lovely advice from a trusted friend, you know, in that moment. And it really did change my state. And I feel like honestly, like that moment is really where I was, had like a deeper recognition of it's time to get sober. Yeah. Wow. So I like that. You know, I like praying even if I'm not sure what I'm praying to. And, and I think you're right. Like having that belief in recognizing when I do my prayers and my morning little stretch routine and everything, I have a better day and I feel better. Even if it's sometimes for five minutes, I feel better. Like that's okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's better, better than not. <laughs> I want to feel better for five minutes. Like, yeah. Who doesn't? <laughs> who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, feeling shitty. Yeah. It's, you know, as somebody who came into sobriety thinking that there is no God gods for the week and like, I'm good. Like I don't have a tooth fairy, just like I don't have a God. Like, like that, I mean that I was so like anti Mm -hmm. and then now it's the most important thing in my life. My faith is, is what carries me through. My faith is where I take action from. Like it's, it's, I've developed, I've come to believe in this higher power. I've developed this faith. Um, and the bottom line is, especially for people who don't have faith, whether, whatever that faith may be in. And again, I'm not religious at all. I'm 0% religious. I'm 100% spiritual. 
Um, so I'm into like, you know, honoring my spirit. Um, the, and I believe that the way I look at God is there's gods in all of us. And so I, when I quiet down, I can hear the God that's in me, this, my, whether it's my spirit, whether, whatever it is. Um, I also know that thoughts are things that there's an energy with each thought, an energy vibration and thoughts don't, this is the weirdest thing to, to consider and to like really get it's that thoughts don't live in our head. I think we all like have this idea that thoughts actually live in our heads, that they're private things within the, like within our home, things are private, like in our thoughts are private in our head. They're not, they're actually out there in the ether. Like you could think something where you are and it could be sent across the world. I mean, how many times have you thought about someone in the call? They get the psychic text. Thoughts don't live in our head. It's, it's trippy. You know, it's trippy. I can't prove that with, with, um, I can't prove that to you in this moment, but what I can tell you is there all the times that I've prayed and they've been answered or I pray about someone and they call or whatever else I can prove it in my experience that there is a connection that I can't see. There's, um, that we're sending and receiving messages from our brains. Um, and so when it comes to prayer, uh, what I noticed is that prayer works, that just prayer works. And so the people who are really shy about prayer, it's like, well, look, okay, if you're, if you're in your bottom and an alcoholic bottom or in a bottom with fear or in a bottom with a breakup devastated, or you're in a bottom with shame or guilt or whatever it is in the moment or an anxiety attack or wherever, some, any sort of place what I've noticed is prayer works. And so whether or not you believe in God or a higher power or spirit of the universe, if you say, please help me, you're more likely to get help than if you don't say it. Absolutely. You know, if you say if, like, bring me some peace right now or show me the answer um, and that nobody will know you're doing it, that it's totally free and always available. And you can just try it as your own little science experiment. When I try this, does it work? Do I feel better when I do this without having to get all heady and into some crazy, like, whatever you believe or not believe just does it work try it does it work or does it not you know like if i if i drink if i drink coffee do i like it do i not okay then drink more or drink less if if i pray just has it as an experiment in life you know and if it works do more of it that's really what i found i kind of got tricked into praying and then i realized that like it actually really works for me <laughs> i feel like a lot of like sober people might feel that way especially like 12 step people like i got tricked into praying yeah. Well, they're like, make a God box. And I'm like, what the fuck should what? I make? Should I make a tooth fairy box? Like what? I mean, like, what are we talking? Like, so I made a God box. <laughs> and I, wrote, I wrote letters to something I didn't believe in and put it. Well, actually my first prayer was wild. I, I made this God box. I was like three or four months sober. I was so, and I, I thought I kind of had this idea. I was really into perfectionism back then. And I, I thought that if I made it perfect, maybe some would happen. And so I got all these collages. I made it really pretty. It was totally sealed so that I could only put letters in. You can't take them out. And they made this beautiful, there was like yoga poses on it. There was like ocean on it. There was like beautiful colors. So I made this whole collage around this like circular big box. And then when I was done, like two hours later, I kind of popped out of what I was doing and I realized I'm like, wait a minute, why am I making a box for something that doesn't exist? This is so, I got livid. Hmm. So I, you know, chain smoked. And then I said, I said my, I shot my first prayer off. Right. And my first prayer was, all right, God, (laughs) if you exist, you know, I'm the statistician. I need data. Show me where you are. I need to know where you are. If you know me, right, you know, I need data. And that was like my first arrogant AF prayer. And then I was like, and then I was so pissed that I even spoke to something that isn't real. I was like, I'm getting brainwashed into talking to something that doesn't, I was like pissed. Hmm. <laughs> it's really angry in the beginning. And so and this is probably like, I don't know, February, 2010 or something. So then I go to my bedroom. I like literally said, God, where are you? Show me where you are. And I go to my, I get mad that I talked to God. I go directly to my bedroom. I'm like, I got to take a break. I'm going to clean up. And I start, I open my drawer to start, um, organizing. And I had this drawer that was filled with all this stuff. And I was like, I'll just clean this drawer. I'll like, kind of like tidy things. while like, I get my mind straight or something. The first thing I picked out of the drawer was this card um, from my grandparents. It was purple and had a big butterfly on it. And right away, I thought of this chick that I knew from recovery that would always say in meetings, my higher power is purple and butterflies. And I looked at it and I thought of her. I was like, (laughs) you know, is it odd or is it God? I'm like, it's fucking odd. It's odd. It's odd. This is odd. This is odd. This is totally this chick. It's her higher power. It's not mine. And it was my, my, my grandparents died um, the year I got sober, before I got sober, right? That was my last year of drinking included both of them dying. And um, so this was the last birthday card I ever got from them. Hmm. And my grandmother was really religious. Uh, her son died of, uh, he was drunk driving, died when he was 17, my dad's oh, brother. 
And so after that, she became really, really religious, you know, and, uh, and found her savior through the church and stuff. So I opened up this card for my grandmother and it said like, happy birthday, whatever. And I'd, I'd read it like a million times. And this is my last card from my grandmother, you know, my last grandparent alive basically. And so I opened it up and the very bottom, I'm getting the chills, the very bottom, it said, remember dear heart, wherever you are, goddess. Oh, wow. And I just fell to the ground. And I just started hysterically crying. And I was, I was going to cry now. I was like, oh my God, my grandmother from the grave is answering my prayer. What the fuck? And I was like, otter God. Okay, this is really odd. I don't know if it's God, but I'm not going to question God anymore. Thank you, grandma. And I was just like, wow, I never saw that. I never saw that postscript before. I never saw it. And I just, from then on, I was like, I won't question God. I'm not ready to pray again, but like something here is going on and I don't know what it is. And thank you, grandma. And you know, what's weird about like um, prayer is I feel closer to my grandmother now than I did when she was alive Mm -hmm. because I, she helped me develop my faith from, you know, because I talked to her in my thoughts the same, but I never did before that. So I started talking, I started talking to my grandmother and then praying and stuff. And like, um, you know, whether or not she could hear me, um, what I know is it made me feel better. And I do feel guided by her, whether or not that's real. I don't know, but I, what is real is I feel comforted by that. Mm-hmm. And it's true. It's not, I'm not being essing myself. So prayer works, whether we're praying to, um, relatives that we love or whether, you know, who aren't here yeah. or to God or whatever, like, um, those thoughts I have found to be really, really helpful. And, um, the, and, and at a certain point in time, I started praying more. And what I found was, is that um, when I wrote these letters to God and put them in my God box, I actually felt better. I felt relief. Mm-hmm. And so um, I found a direct relationship between my ability to let go and my anxiety and my, yeah. my faith. And as my faith grew, my anxiety shrank. Now I needed to also do the tools that I already talked about. I needed to rewire my nervous system. Faith wasn't enough. I needed to also do work on my internal world. Mm-hmm. I needed to learn how to feel as well. But um, the faith really was a, was a huge important factor in, um, in learning how to calm down and be at peace with myself. Yeah, that's huge. And I love that story. That's amazing. It's like a very gentle slap in the face Maybe not even a slap in the face at all, but kind of like 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 being doused with cold water almost to have like those two things with the, the postscript from your grandmother with the purple butterfly card. Yeah, that's a neat story. And that's I framed it. I framed yeah. the card. I was like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> popping up in your grave. I'm like, what? Yeah, and it's so. And again, I think I think you're right. Like prayer works, and if. Um, yeah, if we don't have the evidence behind it, it's like, do I feel better from doing this? Yeah. And I think people do. I do. Um, I was going to say something else, but I'm curious. Uh, I don't remember what that was. I might come back to it. But I'm curious when you earlier talked about, like, you didn't know that you didn't have self-love, like, I guess, in your, I don't know, earlier in your sobriety. And then, like, what happened for you to sort of be aware that that you didn't have it or, or what's like different now that you feel like you have more of it. Cause I know it is a constant evolution and we're always growing and, and adapting and changing, but were there like certain things that, that like dawned on you, like a light bulb or was it just a slow gradual um, realization of different things? Like I'm curious about that awareness of I have more self-love now and I thought I did, but I didn't. Yeah. Um, and so the way that I, define self-love. There's a lot of different ways and a lot of different aspects, but one of the ways that I, one of the core ways that I define self-love is self-acceptance. To love something is to allow it to be as it is. So if I can let myself be as I am and see what I actually am versus wanting myself to be different, that's love acceptance, right? So looking at the flower and admiring the flower versus wanting to pick the, you know, to like change it. So can I, can I accept myself as I am? And so really what that meant to me on a very practical level. Cause again, as woo as I get, it needs to be, there needs, I'm this, I'm also the data analyst. You know, yeah. I trained my brain. I've taken years of calculus. I like, I, you can't undo all that. Right. No, so you can't. As, as woo woo as I get, there's always, I'm like, at least I need to see proof in my own life that it works and in my client's life that it works. Otherwise drop it, you know? Yeah. Um, and so what happened for me is, as a lot of us do, I basically had that whack-a-mole thing where I got sober and other addictions popped up. Other compuls- I was compulsive in other areas of my life. 
you know, I was using, I was getting high on men's attention for a while until I was two and a half years sober. I was eating a bag of chips every night for a while. I don't know, maybe I was three, four years sober or something. And then I was, um, and then I moved to Bali when I was four and a half years sober and I didn't know it, but I was using, I was getting high off spirituality. I was doing like, I was doing so much. I was getting like my chakra sliced and diced. I was doing breath work. I was getting shamanized, soul retrievals, all this stuff, right? I was getting high on spiritual energy basically. And I hit a bottom with that. And I actually, it was actually really scary. I, um, and, and it's actually really wild, but I, I did all, I did, um, I did craniosacral therapy, Reiki master's attunement and, um, past life regression, psychic surgery, and that was all like in two days. That's a <laughs> lot. In two days? I thought this was like courses over a or, year or two. Three days. That was in three days. And like, and like, and on the third day, I just, it was too much. It literally yeah. was too much energy for my system. And it was like, I blew a fuse and this is, I know it sounds crazy and it felt crazy, but like I really OD'd on, on this spiritual energy. There was too much. And I blew open like my, my. I don't, my nadis, as they might call them in, in yoga or my energy channels or something. And I laid in bed for three days thinking I was going to die. Felt like my heart was going to burst out of my chest. And I, and I couldn't understand why people talked about high vibe was a good thing. It felt like the vibration in my body was so high, it was going to kill me. Right. And I was, and I was scared. I didn't even know we had feet chakras. Mine blew open. And I'm like, what is going on? You know, it was just too much voltage in my system. Yeah. And yep. so, um, and I, and in that I realized, oh my fucking God, I'm doing it again. Hmm. I'm using something to avoid myself. And now I'm using spirituality and God to avoid. I'm spiritually bypassing. I'm using spirituality. I'm blowing my mind on spirituality instead of, I'm just like, whoa. And so I made a commitment to no longer be compulsive, like to try to find the willpower to no longer be compulsive. Like, do I have, I didn't with alcohol. I did not have the willpower, right? I needed to go to rehab, but I was like, okay, what happens when I'm not compulsive? Then what am I running from? And so that's what I did. It was like, instead of, and so instead of hitting, waiting for the next whack-a-mole to pop up, you know, that arcade game, right? I was like, I want to unplug the machine. I don't want to keep doing this. I don't want to keep running for myself. I don't want to keep rejecting myself by doing something that I don't want to do, whether it's use men, food, whatever. I don't want to use anything to blow, to, to change how I feel. I want to actually see what I'm running from. Hmm. And then I did these courses across, I, I went, I was in Nepal and India and Thailand and did all like over six months. Um, and I did like this child stuff. I never wanted to look at inner and child, those two words in the same sentence, but that's what I found. I found that there was, you know, there was some love to be given to my inner child. And, um, and what I really found in that whole journey, um, was that there was a lot of, I had a lot of, um, trauma inside, a lot of pain that I had never felt a lot of, a lot of grievances I had never grieved. And so when I stopped, when I stopped um, using things to change how I feel, when I stopped all my addictions, what I found underneath that was um, there was a lot of feelings that had to be felt. So I had already learned to feel in sobriety a lot. I learned how to, and really it's, um, this is what I, this is the core of what I teach people in my work, not because I really wanted it because it's been my journey. It's, I wanted to be free. I wanted to be free. I didn't want, I wanted to enjoy things in life, not need them. Yeah. Like enjoy a bag of chips, not need it. Like enjoy dating, not need it, you know? So how do I, how can I be free in these areas? I want to be free. You know, like how free do you want to be? I want to be hundred percent free. And so what I saw was, is that I needed to learn how to feel. And like specifically, I needed to learn how to befriend my sensations inside my body if I was going to be free. Otherwise I was going to spend my entire life running from the sensations in my body, which is also what addiction is, you know, another way to look at addiction. I know it's more complex than that. But so when I realized that I, that I needed to allow and love and accept myself and that that was the journey home, that was a journey to freedom, um, all my feelings came up that I never wanted to feel. I went through this whole grieving process. I fell in love with grief. So, um, and it was, that was really, for me, that was like the, the turning point with my self-love when I realized that I had always rejected myself. And this was at five, and, five, five and a half years sober. I realized that I had always rejected myself. I have a feeling. I think maybe you're right. I'm not right. My feeling doesn't matter. It doesn't count. Um, I don't want to feel guilty. So I'll, I'll let you manipulate me. I'll do what you say. So I don't have to feel guilt. I feel anxiety. So I'm going to eat or text somebody or, or write an angry email or whatever I'm going to, or drink or be into dramatic relationships. So I can kind of have a sense of chaos going on to block me from how I really feel mm -hmm. or getting to know myself. I'm afraid of, um, I'm afraid of intimacy, so I'll pick somebody who's more afraid of intimacy than, than me, and I can blame them for being emotionally unavailable. Really, I'm emotionally unavailable. 
you know, hiding under people who have it worse than me sometimes like that. So I had like a best friend who was drunker than me. So she had a problem. I had a boyfriend who was more afraid of uh, intimacy than I was. So he had a problem, right? So I used all these ways to avoid looking at myself. And so what I really found was the way to get free was to allow myself to be as I am. So to literally train my mind to be with the sensations in my body. So when I feel sadness, be with it. Drop the story about what mommy or daddy did or didn't do or the ex or whatever. And I really learned to um, befriend my sensations, whether the sensations had a word like shame, guilt, anger, anxiety, or pain. It didn't matter if it was physical pain or if it was emotion. When I learned how to be with or befriend my sensations, my entire world changed. And for me, that was self-love, was like, oh my God, I made a firm commitment at five and a half years sober, which is how long it took me to see that I was doing that, to no longer reject myself. Hmm. I hadn't realized I'd been rejecting myself. So if you would have told me at two years sober or three years or six months that I didn't have self-love and I was rejecting myself, I, I couldn't have heard, I wouldn't have been able to hear you. But if I really looked at what I was doing, I was constantly doing things I didn't want to do because I didn't know how to feel, because I didn't know how to be with myself. I was uncomfortable in my skin. So the solution to being uncomfortable in the skin is to get into your skin, <laughs> not to run away, not to throw something over your skin. And what I truly found was like my anxiety, and this is in like the Harkasm Revolution, which it sounds, and it is fun. It's a fun book. It's super sassy, but like really it's a deep dive healing so that we can be happy, joyous, and free. Like the 12 steps weren't enough for me to be happy, joyous, and free. I had a lot of outside issues. I had a lot of trauma. I had a lot of stuff blocked inside my body, like physical stuff inside my body. And so, um, and the way I look at anxiety now, which really I think for me was traumatic stress that hadn't been addressed yet, but anxiety is like a warning light on the dashboard of a car. And it's saying, hey, check under the hood. Something isn't right under the hood. There's a problem under, check the engine, check the engine, check the engine. And so what I did when my, when my anxiety was saying, check the engine, I got a piece of tape and I covered, I covered the check engine light. That tape was called benzos, right? <laughs> Clonopin. That tape was called um, sex. It was called alcohol. It was called chips. It was called anything that would cover the, the, the warning light. Like, let's just cover it. It's not there. It's not there. I'm going to deny that I'm getting a little message saying something isn't right. And so when I stopped covering the warning light and I actually went under the hood, like into my heart, what I found was I had a tremendous amount of shame buried inside me. I had these beliefs buried way below my conscious, like thinking of something's wrong with me. I'm fundamentally flawed um, and I'm not lovable. And so the solution wasn't to stop the anxiety. The solution was to learn how to love myself, Mm -hmm. to change the belief that I'm unlovable. Because when I believe I'm unlovable, it's so painful that I can't even really like allow myself to realize I'm doing that, but I'm going to live in self-rejection. I'm going to try to do what I can to get love from the outside. So I'm going to try to be who you want me to be in the relationship. I'm going to pretend like I'm perfect. I'm going to be a super achiever. I'm going to try to get perfect grades. Like these are things that I did to try to prove my lovability and prove my worthiness and to get your love and to show that I'm worthy of love. So the solution to all of that, the whole self-betrayal game is to is to realize that I'm lovable. Of course, I'm lovable. I'm a child of God. I'm a soul inside a body. How could I not be lovable? That's the essence of what I am. Well, let me believe that. So I, so I, I believe that we feel our way to freedom. So I needed to feel everything that I never wanted to feel. The way to get free was to feel it all, to allow it all. And what I realized was, and what all my clients realize is when I take them through this, because mm-hmm. um, inevitably this is part of what I do with my clients, is they all say, and what I say, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. They all freaking say it's not that bad. And that was, I was like, oh, it's not that bad. I fell in love with grief. I spent my entire life running from my pain. And when I turned around and faced it, I was like, oh, it's not that bad. I actually like this mm-hmm. because it's because I'm accepting myself. I'm allowing myself. It's not that bad. It's, you know, I don't prefer grief only because it's so draining energetically. I prefer joy or I prefer heartgasms or orgasms or, or you know, joy. Yeah, um, joy. I don't prefer grief. I don't prefer rage. But what I love about grief is it's so all encompassing. It's kind of like if I'm here in Bali and it's, there's a rainstorm and I'm on my motorbike and I'm going to be driving in the rain with my poncho on, right? There's two ways to do it. Being freaked out and annoyed and like scared and tense, or I can be like, oh my God, there's rain on my face and my, my sandals are in the puddles and I'm splashing and it's kind of fun and I'm like five and I'm in it and I'm noticing it. And I'm not thinking about it. I'm experiencing the rain on my body. 
I feel like grief was the same. It's a very different motorbike ride. I'm just going to go slow and be in the rain and it's kind of fun versus I hate this. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I found about grief. It's like, if I just allow it and notice it, it's like, I feel like that this, you know, this, this emotion, my heart, it's like so big and wild, like a crazy tsunami or something. And it's like, wow, if I get curious about where it all is in my body, very different than, and mommy and daddy, and I stay in a story about what, what triggered it. Then I actually process it for the first time. And once I actually be with my feelings for the first time that I never felt, they actually leave my body for good. Yeah. You know, it's not rehashing an old wound. The old wound was never addressed. Uh, the old wound has now surfaced so that I can actually remove the pus that's inside of it. Sorry for the gross analogy. But I had never, there was a pus-filled wound deep under the skin. And that's why I had the anxiety because something wasn't right there, the belief that I'm unlovable. So I go in and love myself by allowing it and then I'm free. So I didn't seek out for self-love. I, that wasn't what I wanted to get. That's what I found. That was the holy grail of my journey. That's what I found. But I didn't know that I didn't love myself. I didn't know that I was always rejecting myself. But that's what I found. I really like how you said self-love is self-acceptance and how you just explained and defined acceptance as really... Because I think we can all sort of think we accept ourselves, um, but to really go in and be able to sit with the bodily sensations and what's happening in our physiology when things come up, it, this is a practice that I've been um, doing with the somatic experiencing for the past, since I got sober with my therapist and then I've begun doing the training and so I'm working with other people with it now. Um, and you're very, it's really awesome work. And it's so similar to what you're describing because it is, it's like, and I had a wave of grief come up a couple of weeks ago and like grief really is like this wave and it's not that bad. And it's so beautiful because <laughs> totally. I, I feel like grief is one of those emotions where you are so present. Like if you can just be present with it, you're, you're not anywhere else, you know? And it doesn't, yeah. it's not, yeah, it's not like something terrible. I mean, it, maybe it's not as fun as joy. It feels different in my body, but it's, I feel like um, in practicing this work too, our bodies start to build capacity to be able to feel more so that it happens more easily um, and, and more fluidly and maybe more quickly as well. But it's, it just becomes more of like a habit and a natural thing of like, okay, when something's happening, I'm going to go ahead and feel it in my body instead of making up a story or trying to block it out with something else. But I never yeah. really thought about that in conjunction with self-love, like of that kind of self-acceptance. So I think that's a really like beautiful connect the dots. Um, yeah. Well, really what, and the way that I look about it, the way that I look at it is like, you know, the life that I built before I got sober was built on a, an, a foundation of ice. I built this mansion on a foundation of ice. And then I got sober, ice melted, the house crashed. So I really needed to rebuild my confidence, who I am in the world. Um, who I am. I didn't know who I was, mm-hmm. you know, I, who am I? Like, what do I like to do? What's your hobby? I don't know. Drinking. Like, you know, so like, <laughs> I would make up hobbies. I'm like, my hobby is getting drunk AF all the time. <laughs> Drinking yeah. for breakfast. Like, what do you mean? What's my hobby? <laughs> Going to the liquor store. Oh, maybe I ride my bike there. <laughs> Drinking and making out. Is there anything else? <laughs> Dancing <laughs> like, at the club. Um, <laughs> oh my God, now I'm a little embarrassed. Um, I think we've yeah, all been there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so it's, so yeah, it's like finding out who I was, but the only way I'm going to build a solid build, like build something real and that if I do it on authentic ground, the only way to build a life on authentic ground is to know who I am and to see what's there. But I needed to remove some stuff I needed to remove. And like, this is the first part of my book, the Harkasm revolution, removing our barriers to love. It comes from a Rumi poem that says, uh, it's not about finding love. Basically it's about removing all of our barriers to love instead of seeking love. So what I found was I had a lot of barriers to love and I needed to, I needed to heal those barriers to love so I can come back to my loving state. Mm-hmm. One of my barriers to love, and I look at it like, I really look at it scientifically, like, and this is what I found, the first level to go through, the lower hanging fruit for a newly sober person or a person new on this journey, right, is the anxiety. Underneath my anxiety was rage. Underneath my rage was grief. I wasn't actually angry. I was really sad. It was really sad. Underneath my sadness was shame, this feeling of something's wrong with me. Guilt was in there too. Um, so then shame underneath the shame was, a um, uh, was, was love, but I needed to go to the, bro- through the broken heart of my shame. It's mm. heartbreaking to believe that, that I'm unlovable. It's heartbreaking to think what my life looked like when I believed I was unlovable. All the things I tried to do, although my whole life was about trying to get love and to see that it's like really devastating. And it's like, no, 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 you already are lovable, honey. <laughs> like, yeah. You, don't, you need- don't have to do anything. 
There's nothing to defend. There's nothing to prove. You don't need to do anything to show anybody how great you are. You can just be who you are. And the people who are into who you naturally are will come. And the people who are repelled, good, go away. Yeah. But be yourself. Don't try to get it. Just be it. And so, um, so it was a journey through the, the, the emotions for me and the, the, what was blocking me from my own expression of love. Cause I don't think love is something we need to get. It's what we are. What was blocking me from my expression of my own love for myself was all the feelings I never felt was the grief. On the other side of the grief is when I found myself, the grief was blocking my heart. Energetically, there was a lot of grief. There was heaviness. I felt like, I felt like there were times in my sobriety where I felt like, I feel like, like when I think about people love me, it hurts my heart. Why does it hurt my heart? Why do I feel like in my head, I love this person, but in my heart, I don't feel it. Why am I not feeling love? Even though I think I love them. Mm -hmm. Like my boyfriend that drove me to rehab, basically, I was like, I know I love them, but why don't I feel it? Like I, what's wrong with me? Why can't I feel this stuff? Mm -hmm. You know, I think I was even like my first year of recovery. I had this thought. I was like, wow, I think this, what I'm feeling right now is what they call joy. Am I feeling joy? <laughs> you know? So it was like waking back up. I mean, especially with alcohol and benzos, I mean, you're numbed the F out. And so thawing and waking up, it was like, oh, so all of this energy that I never felt was trapped inside my body, blocking me from my own expression of my own love. Mm -hmm. So the way out was through. And when I learned how to accept myself as I was, as soon as you accept something, you transform it. Our consciousness, this is now we're getting into Einstein, right? Our consciousness changes matter. They show it in the Petri dish, but this is Einstein's work. It's still true today, right? Consciousness changes matter. So when I put my mind on something, the thing I'm putting my mind on changes. And so when I put my mind, my, my, my a consciousness on the sensations in my body, the sensations change. So I don't, I don't become mindful of my emotions because I want them to change mm -hmm. because that's missing the point. That's trying to change it. Right? right. So when I go with a fresh slate and I just notice what is without a desire for it to be different, it changes. It's a yeah. paradox. Always. If I can radically accept how I am as I am, then I will actually change for the better. Not only is it not that bad, but it immediately transforms and transmutes and I get free in the moment. It's quick. It's simple. It's always available. I mean, I really think that this is my gift for humanity. This is the trail that I have blazed is like, you teaching people how to feel. I never wanted this. I mean, I was a statistician, you know, yeah. I never wanted this to be what I was going to talk about and teach about, but this is the path to freedom. Yep. I call it self-love, but really it's, it's learning how to allow what we are transmuted in the moment. How can I, when I get triggered, how can I take care of myself so I can still engage with you for my higher self mm -hmm. and to create where I am the safe space. Like no matter yeah. what's happening externally, because like I always have that available to me to go in and just see like, oh, what's happening and curiously just observe it and see yeah. what happens because it always changes, always changes. Like if, if you can just put your attention on it, it'll change. And one of the chapters in the Harkasm Revolution is called Canceling the Guilt Trip. Like all the chapters are, the, they're like practices. The first third of the book is removing your barriers to love. The second bit is excavating the heart. It's practices to, to remove the barrier, like to excavate your heart basically is what I found I needed to do. And then the, the third part is called come alive. So then it's practices to, to come back to life now that you've had some, like some deep dive healing and some emotional sobriety. Um, but the chapter on canceling the guilt trip, like as soon as I realized that I was always allowing people to manipulate me through guilt, because I had been manipulated through guilt as a child. So I allowed people to use guilt to coerce me into certain behaviors. And worse than that, I was doing it to others. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was inviting others on guilt trips too to get them to, to show up on time or whatever. Like, oh yeah, don't worry about me. I've just been waiting here for five minutes, right? I'm guilting someone. So yeah. I was using guilt, but I was also allowing people to control me through guilt until I realized I was doing it. So until I meet all of my sensations, I'm going to avoid them and I'm, my life is going to look weird Yeah, because I'm going to be people pleasing and guilt. I'm going to go on guilt trips and all that. So um, really that's like what I break down and that's what I found is I need to know how to be with each different flavor of sensation so that I can be free because handling guilt is different than handling, handling rage or grief as we discussed. Grief and guilt are different and so is love and so is physical pain. So all of these different flavors of sensations, there's ways to be more skillful with them. And, um, and that to me is true power, true personal power is when I can be with myself and still decide from, um, decide from my highest good, how I want to engage with the world and create my reality and shape shift my future based upon my intention, not my emotional world. Yeah. That's lovely. And I like what you said earlier too, just about writing down what you want to create and having it come true. <laughs> A good reminder. I had that happen like years ago doing that. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do that again. Um, Cause it all came true. 
So it's been great to have you on. I know we're kind of getting close to an hour. Is there anything that you want to like tell the audience, anything else, um, any kind of promotion? I know you, you mentioned your book and your book is out, correct? It's launched and yeah, it's on purchase. Um, you can go to the, the heartgasmrevolution.com and check it out there, theheartgasmrevolution.com or onto Amazon. Also, I made a YouTube show. Um, the third part of the book is called Come Alive. And so I made a YouTube show called Come Alive. I think we have, at the time of our talk, talk today, like six episodes out. There's like, I think maybe like 10 total. So that was a lot of fun. I, for anybody who is, you know, a lot of us get sober and we realize, wait a minute, I want to like create my own world. I want to like help people and be of service. I want to be a speaker. I have a message. My mess is my message. I want to transform other people. And it's so beautiful. Um, and so I interview in this show, it's kind of my journey around Bali, which is kind of fun. You know, like I hire these video guys and there's some beautiful shots. You can get like a little view of, of what Bali looks like and life here. But also I interviewed some like really exceptional people. Like I interviewed in episode two, um, while we had gold facials, like gold plated facials, mm -hmm. um, she was a drug addict and now she's a self-made so by the end of the year, she'll be a self-made multimillionaire. Wow. And so it's super inspiring to hear how she handles fear and doubt. And then I interviewed a 12 year old who is a fashion designer and she said no to shark tank for their $30 million offer. Right. And she's a six figure, um, a six figure business at 12 years old. Actually she did that 11 years old and I was in her fashion show and that's part of the episode, but I asked her how she did, how she handles fear and doubt. Cause she's also an international speaker. She gets flown around the world business class to speak. She's 12. It's amazing. She just spoke at, she just spoke at Burning Man last week to 80,000 people. She's 12. That's amazing. So I asked her how she handles her fear and her doubt. And then, um, there's a branding expert. There's all these different people. And so it's a, it's a beautiful like series called uh, Come Alive on YouTube. So that's, I would invite people to come and watch that and be part of that journey. A lot of good advice for people who want to be entrepreneurs or speakers or messengers or thinking about they, they want their a side hustle or to create some sort of like what you're doing too. You know, it's like, I don't know if you were doing this work before you got sober, but it sounds like it's more new. It's like we get sober and we're like, wait a minute. Yeah. What do I act? What would make me come alive? Like, what do I actually want to, what would be orgasmic? Like, what do I actually want to spend, like devote my life force to? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so that's on YouTube. My YouTube channel is Kirsten Johnson, K-I-R-S-T-E-N Johnson XO. I'm, I'm Kirsten Johnson XO on Facebook, on Instagram and on YouTube. So I would definitely invite people to come watch the show on YouTube. Plus there's a lot of videos on there about sobriety, healing, shame, a lot of videos about anxiety because that's been my journey. So um, I talk about guilt, all the things to um, to get free, and yeah, and and read the Heartgasm Revolution. I would love. Um, that's a really easy way to like get into my work. It's like you know, it's a book, so it's super cheap, and there's just like a lot. And you guys, it's like sassy. I don't know how <laughs> I wrote something so sassy because normally I don't. I'm not like that, but I mean, the first just to give you an idea of like what is going on. It's dedicated to two people. It's dedicated. Just so people, when they first, well, I really thought about who is this book for, but people will also get an idea of like my thinking just from the dedication. There's the only F bomb in the entire book is in the, de is in the dedication. Guys, <laughs> um, it's true. It's, um, but the book is dedicated to uh, Bill Wilson and Eckhart Tolle. Because hmm. those are the two, two authors of the two books that transformed my, my life the most. So like, that's where, you know, it's about getting sober and like, and, and overcoming fear. Um, because I used to wake up and this kind of what the dedications is. I used to wake up like 10 years ago. I used to wake up and my first thought was, fuck, I'm still alive. Yeah. You know, and I just, I'd wake up in an anxiety attack and I'd just be like, fuck, is there any more alcohol? Because I, I'm like freaking, I'm like heart racing, panicked. I don't know okay. if I can get out of bed. Can I crawl to the kitchen? Is the, did I drink it all or is there more? I mean, that's how I used to wake up 10 years ago. Um, and then so today, like in a couple of weeks, I'm, I'll be 10 years sober, you know, God willing. Um, and my life isn't like that anymore. And so like, how do you climb out of that? How do you climb out of that? So how do you come alive? And that's been my journey is um, coming back to life. I love it. <laughs> um, and I'll put all, right. all of your um, all of your links and everything in the show notes too for people so they can go buy your book. And uh, I did watch part of the episode with Hanale, the the girl that you oh, were. Cool. Yeah, it was neat. I think I was in an area where my YouTube kept cutting out because I didn't see the rest of it. But I was like, this is amazing. This is the whole show. Um, the cinematography yeah. was really good. And that the girl from how I watched her, she seems so self possessed and poised. She, I don't know if she's a very old soul or just was raised incredibly well or very gifted, but that's amazing. Her story's amazing. 
Yeah. She's, I mean, I just get such chills when I think about her. It was so beautiful to like meet her and then to get to be in her fashion show. And like, I was self-conscious. Her dresses are, are like beautiful. And I'm like walking in, I'm like, she was 11 when she designed this. I'm walking her runway. I'm like, I'm like, whoa, like she's really helping me come alive. Like, how is this, you know, like I, I, she, I was 30 when she was born and I'm wearing her dress and her face. You know, like, wow. It's <laughs> amazing. The episode that's coming up this week is her mom. Cause I was like, well, I want to talk to her mom. Cause her mom yeah. obviously did her Honolulu's branding. And so that episode coming out is branding with soul. And it's just, it's another like chills. Like it's just amazing. Like conscious parenting, how they raised her, how you raise somebody to like already be looking at what their values are, living by their values and their spirit from a young age. Like it's just, it's phenomenal. Like, the kids these days, you know, I feel like each generation that comes in, comes in a little more enlightened, a little more evolved. And it's just beautiful to like learn from such young people. It's just it incredible. Is. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed chatting with you and um, hearing more about your work. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. Oh, the other thing I want to say is the heartgasmrevolution.com is for my book and my actual website. If people want to come like book around there too, is kerrjohnson.com. So K-I-R- J-O-H-N-S-O-N. So they can find out more stuff there and links to everything. If they want to come, uh, come party with me. <laughs> yeah. Come check her out. She has a wonderfully infectious laugh. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's fun yeah. to talk about sensations and, and, and freedom by somebody who gets it. It's <laughs> yeah, well getting it, you know, um, <laughs> I try. Um, all right. Thank you.